0: you don't know Mojack. My name is Ryan.
1: My name's is Brandt.
0: In this episode, we're discussing SST 185, the Alternatives Group Therapy LP. We haven't had the Alternatives on, well, full-length anyways, since episode 75, I believe, so it's been a long time. I think we had them on 102, the no-age comp, but it's been a long time since we've had the Alternatives on. Very cool to go through another record of theirs. They are out there, and I like it, and we've got a last-minute very special guest, brand.
1: Yeah, we've got Chris Bopst joining our two-timers club. Nice,
0: nice, excellent. Welcome to the club, Chris. Yeah. You know, I don't know if we ever mentioned it on the last episode that we had Chris on. I mean, maybe we did, but it, maybe it just didn't sink into me now that, of course, he was also in that. We always talk about GWAR, right, mm-hmm. as, as being kind of related to Alternatives. But have we ever mentioned the Holy Rollers, that Discord band that Chris
1: played in? Yeah, we talked about it on that episode. Okay, I guess that's just too long ago for me to remember. Well, I don't know how much we talked about it. I know we, it was mentioned. I know that. Yeah,
0: well, I don't want to steal any thunder from the End On End podcast or anything like that. I just know that the the record that Chris plays on is the heavier one, mm. not like uh, As Is or Fabule. Those are not as heavy as the self-titled one that Chris is on. Anyways, before we get into the alternatives in our interview with Chris... Why don't you hit us with some spiel's, Brandt?
1: Okay, my first one, Ryan, is a is a little bit of a tribute to a, a rocker that passed away last week. Daryl Bath is his name. I don't know if you saw that. No. Yeah. So Daryl's a, you know, one of these guys that I'm super into. Like, you know, Ryan, I listen to all kinds of music, and listeners probably have figured that out by now too. For everywhere from from metal to jazz and all points in between and garage rock and SST stuff and avant-garde. But my heart, Ryan, as you know, is in hair metal. Well, no,
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go for it.
1: It's, it's in like stones, dolls, thunders, what I like to call tipsy gypsy music. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. That's my wheelhouse. And Daryl's was one of those guys. He passed away on September 28th, almost a year to the day that Dave Cusworth passed away. Oh yeah, great. Just one of those totally authentic, true blue rock and rollers, like in the Keith Richards vein, super underrated songwriter. He collaborated with many different artists throughout his career, joined some pretty well-known bands, affronted bands of his own, and made some incredible solo albums. He played with the Vibrators, the UK Subs off and on. He made a couple albums with Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople. Mott the Hoople, yeah. Played with Diamond Dogs, played in Dogs More. He collaborated with Nikki Sudden, Spike from the Choir Boys, Dave Cusworth, many, many more. Here's just a few places people should should check if they want to hear, hear some Daryl Bath. Sabre Jet is an album. Uh, it's called Same Old Brand New from 2000. Although he credited it to a band name, Sabre Jet, it's essentially his first solo album. Like all of his stuff, it's just great ragged rock and roll in the Stones, Faces, Dolls, Thunder tradition. Roll Up is also a great solo album under his own name. He played on two of my favorite Nicky Sudden solo albums, 2004's Treasure Island and Nicky's last album before he died, 2006's The Truth Doesn't Matter. He's also all over the posthumous Playing With Fire album, which is unused tracks from Treasure Island. He played in the Dave Cusworth group on two total classics from Dave, two of my favorite Dave Cusworth releases, Silverblades and The Brink. He played on two amazing Ian Hunter comeback albums in the mid-90s, Dirty Laundry and The Artful Dodger. He co-wrote some of the songs on those records. Uh, he played on the last Truly Great Dogs to More album, 1993's More Unchartered Heights of Disgrace, where he also co-wrote many tracks. He also... Played on Frontman Tyler's debut solo album from the following year, The Life and Times of a Balladmonger. But the absolute highlight for me, Ryan, is the band he formed with Honest John Plain of The Boys, the fantastic Crybabies. Their debut album from 91, Where Have All the Good Girls Gone, is just a stone-cold classic, again in that Keith Thunders vein. You know, everybody in the band just looks like Steven Tyler's mic stand. If you're going to track down one thing that I've mentioned, try and find the 2003 comp What Kind of Rock and Roll. It contains uh, their pre- their previously unreleased second album and the first one, which I just mentioned, and all the singles. It's a phenomenal collection uh, if this kind of stuff is your cup of tea. So I'm just
0: looking on my shelf here and I've got this one, Cry Daily Misery. Yep. Is, that, is that one to get too? Yeah, that's that their a...
1: last one. It's probably my least favorite of the Cry stuff. There's okay. another one called Rock On that, that is really good. That's a good record too, but the other stuff is is preferable for me anyways. Okay,
0: so the one I have, and I don't know where I picked it up, but it's probably the least recommended. Still good though. Still good. Yeah. There are some great pictures inside this thing though, I must say. Like oh, this yeah. one, Honest John Plain, just down
1: with Steven Tyler, Mike Stand going yep. on. Playing a Les Paul. You bet, man. Those guys are all legit rock stars. There's
0: another picture in here of Daryl Bath and Honest John, like just probably doing a major acoustic
1: strum session and pounding through many sigs while doing that. Yeah, man. Like if you ever see that that double C D comp, what kind of rock and roll, pick it up. You'll I guarantee you'll like it, Ryan.
0: That's the one I should get. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay, Ryan, Yep Rock is reissuing the first Salvation Army single, Mine Gardens, as a double seven inch for its oh, wow. for its fortieth anniversary. Listeners will know already, Ryan, this was originally released in eighty one as New Alliance Records six. As far as I know, it's never been reissued. This version has the two original tracks plus two more recorded during the original sessions.
0: It's been bootlegged for sure, yeah. but it's never really been officially reissued, so that's cool.
1: Yeah, it also contains liner notes from bassist vocalist vocalist Michael Quercio, so definitely check that out. It is limited. Yeah. Rock Doc Ryan, The Sparks Brothers documentary about the Sparks. Oh yeah. Sparks.
0: Yeah, yeah, did you check that out? Yeah, have you seen it? Not yet, but it's on my to-do list oh, for man. sure.
1: So, it's about the Sparks the the Sparks band and the two brothers Ron and Russell Mayle, directed by Edgar Wright, a big name director. He made a bunch of Hollywood blockbusters like Ant-Man and Baby Driver, Shaun of the Dead. It's obviously high budget, but this film is a fan's dream come true. This is now, for me, the gold standard for which all music docs will be measured. Wow. Yeah. Amazing footage, photos from all eras of the band, tons of cool uh, and hilarious like animation. Uh, an unbelievable cast of interviewees, actors, mm-hmm. artists, yeah. collaborators, uh, and of course full participation from the brothers. What an amazing career they had. Sparks are just artists through and through. Like, I must admit to being a casual fan at best, but wow, super impressed by their artistry, uh, their commitment to their vision, their boldness, their work ethic. They built just a phenomenal body of work had an unbelievable impact all the while, like continually challenging themselves and their audience. This is a must see documentary. And like, I've, I've got to get into sparks. I'm ashamed to say that I don't, you know, don't really know their history. So if you asked a mega fan, they might tell you that some stuff was left out of this documentary, but I would be surprised. Like yeah, any band that you're a fan of, if they made a documentary about them, Anywhere near as thorough as this one, like it would, you would just be thrilled.
0: Right on. Yeah, no, I it's definitely on my to-do list. I consider myself similar to you, a casual fan, but uh, that is likely going to change after watching it as well.
1: Yeah, it reminded me not content-wise, but it kind of reminded me of that XTC one, where it's like mm-hmm. this. Yep. This is a band that's had some few minor hits, but it ha- has had a career largely based on a huge cult following
0: Mm mm-hmm
1: for sure yeah
0: yeah the only rock doc i watched this last week was unfortunately that woodstock 99 one and it's (laughs) just it's just endless the word that kept on coming up the whole time is just gross yeah it's just the worst of humanity
1: yeah yeah that one like i didn't really know much about that woodstock 99 was not on my radar in 1999 no,
0: me either. Yeah. Ninety, the Woodstock '94 was though, because like Rollins Band played that and stuff, and and but '99, the new metal, Barf yeah. Fest, yeah. no way.
1: Ryan podcast shout out: Andrew Klemek was on the Watt from Pedro show. Andrew was in the Cleveland late bass band X Blank X, okay, f- which was fronted fronted by John Morton of Electric Eels. His brother Jamie was in the band Mirrors. And Andrew is also on a number of Scarcity of Tanks releases. Ah. Yeah. So they get into that weirdo Cleveland scene from that era. And, you know, of course, play some crazy-ass tunes. Yeah. So that's worth checking out.
0: Yeah, no way. That sounds cool.
1: Finally, Ryan, I picked this up this week. It is the Black Sabbath Technical Ecstasy Super Deluxe. (laughs) How many discs? Uh, Four. Now... I've been listening to Sabbath for 35 years. I never seem to tire of them. Like a lot of people probably listening to this podcast, I have multiple copies of all of their albums. I've got four of Technical Ecstasy now. I love every era of the band. I love the Dio era just as much as I love the Ozzy era. I'm obsessed with Born the record Born Again with Ian Gillen on vocals. The Tony Martin stuff is totally underrated. This new set is worth the money. The live album is all previously unreleased which is not something some of the other recent super deluxe editions like Sabotage and Volume 4 can claim although you still need those too. Hopefully this version kind of rewrites the history on this album. It's kind of unfairly maligned. It's got synthesizers, it's less doomy, a little more proggy, but there are some total classics on here. There's basically three versions of the album all were a fun listen for me. A 2021 remaster, which is cool. The Castle remasters uh, came from unknown source tapes. So even if you have those, or even if you have the black box, you probably need this 2021 remaster. Uh, it also has the now obligatory Stephen Wilson mix. And I always enjoy those. A new mix can really make an album sound different, and this, this does. Uh, there's a third disc with some... Outtakes, alternate versions, the synth is way up in the mix on some of them. Comes with a sixty page book, a poster, original tour program. Check it out if you're a Sabbath fan.
0: Right on. I would consider myself a medium to high casual Sabbath fan. Okay. Does that does that shock you? No. No. Yeah, good. Good. <laughs> i It doesn't shock me at all that this is your fourth copy of that record and this fourth copy has four CDs as well.
1: Yeah, it probably won't be my last version of it either. Yeah, there's never
0: enough Sabbath for Brent. No No surprise there. Yeah, well that's good. That's why we love you, man.
1: I can't wait to see what they do a Super (laughs) Deluxe of next. Like, the thing about Technical Ecstasy for me is, you know, I've heard Paranoid and Volume 4 and Master of Reality in the first record a gazillion times and I still listen to them and still love them but this is one that's you know hasn't been a go-to record for me my entire life like those ones have so mm. it's uh it's it's fun my I'm really not burnt out on this record maybe to the degree that I am on some of those others
0: yeah right on well there's nothing like a good reissue to reignite some interest and in fandom and stuff my first spiel is about a reissue can I hit it yeah man okay so I've already mentioned this one already and this is probably like, this is this is as big for me as a four CD Black Sabbath box set and it's the new Sorry Ma reissue by The Replacements, but the Rhino podcast, which I
1: have never checked out, it's pretty mainstream. It's basically an advertisement for whatever they're it's releasing, right? Totally. It's just a
0: big long commercial for another thing that the the record label's doing, but they had a Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash 40th Anniversary Reissue Box Set podcast. And they had biographer Bob Mayer on and Twin Tone Records founder Peter Jesperson on. And believe it or not, for the ultimate M.A.T.S. fan, some new nuggets on there. I haven't listened to any of the like 60 unreleased tracks that are coming out on this box set. They played a few snippets during the show. And man, oh man, I hope, unlike the last box set where they screwed it up so royally in the mail for me, I hope they don't screw it up and this thing arrives on schedule because I'm going to go hog wild
1: on this Sorry 40th edition box set, man. It's going to be insane. There is nothing like, you know, getting a deluxe edition of some record that you love and just soaking in it like reading the booklet and just oh yeah getting all the way into it it's just awesome man and uh you know i i know i've complained in the past about some sst cash grabs like star power for example (laughs) but like i just hate it when people bitch and i'm sure i've done it too and but like you don't have to buy these things
0: no i definitely have complained in the past about like the uh, the Elvis Costello reissues and the X reissues, where it's like, man, I just bought these, you know, or I just rebought these, and now there's another reissue with like three other tracks that I don't have that you squeezed out of me two years ago. Those ones have really bugged me, but this is no this is no cash grab. This is endless hours of yeah. new replacements for me and and like formative replacements.
1: Yeah, I mean, if the bonus tracks are worth it, which both of these replacements box sets so far, the Dead Man's Pop and the Please to Meet Me, have been, both been worth it.
0: Yeah, Sorry Ma is going to be way up there. Yeah,
1: that I mean, look, here's how I look at it, man. Black Sabbath is a good example. I've been listening to them my whole life, so if I can give those dudes another hundred bucks of my money for all the years that they've provided me, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, yeah, same here, man. Same here. I don't think that there are any
0: more Sorry Ma era tracks to be released, though, based on the the podcast, though. Like, they've released some already on the CD reissues, but this is it, baby.
1: And can't wait. I, I kind of like the replacements are, in a sense, doing the same thing Black Sabbath's doing. They're not going in order or anything. So it kind of leaves you guessing what they're going to do next.
0: Yeah, it sounds like from the podcast that they're kind of releasing things as Paul allows it, yeah. and in the or in the order in, the order in which that they can get Paul's attention, right, uh, which I love, yeah, because it's totally it's... random, just like Paul.
1: That's the replacements, man.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's one spiel, one quick podcast shout out. I've got a second one though. The Vinyl Guide had Kira Rossler on recently. Now Kira was on the Conan Neutron one a few weeks back, and I mentioned that she's on the Vinyl Guide. It, of course, is great because Kira is great. It covers a lot of the same territory as on Conan's uh, Protonic Reversal episode with Kira on, talking about her new record, of course. Um, Interesting perspective that Kira provides relative to Greg Ginn on this episode. I think she gives a pretty balanced kind of overview in terms of how to to look at him and the label and, and even Raymond Pettibone and stuff. So it's it's worth your listen, even if you've heard the Conan Neutrons one recently, I would say. And, you know, it's always good to hear from Kira. Okay.
1: I haven't listened to that yet, but I'll check it out.
0: Yeah. Some new... So you mentioned the Salvation Army. So we got some new stuff coming on the tree. Here's another one that's new as of last Friday on the tree. And we should also mention, too, big thanks to Vetus Matari for sending us the latest Petrified Max release. Year Gone By, their CD this year, it's cool. I'm still listening to it. Some jangly, uh, indie rock pop, psychedelic stuff. It's a great listen. They just released another digital single this past weekend. Uh, This one is called Tomorrow, and uh, the digital B-side, I guess, is Dancing Trees. Earlier this year, you'll recall, they also released a digital single to coincide with, with releasing their... CD Year Gone By. That was the Lucky Couple Thimble of Sun digital single. This one is out there now as of this Friday. Go check out that. The Petrified Max, the Trotsky Ice Pick stuff that's coming out in the last couple of years. Very cool. And looking forward to some more uh, re releases on the Trotsky Ice Pick catalog as well. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I had a quick literature shout out for you, Brant, uh, to check out another new photo book. Um, it's amazing how there are these people who are, you know, I guess, discovering their roles of film <laughs> from from back in the day when they were the one at these shows who had cameras. You know, these were the guys. These were the gals with film at the shows. Right. This one is by a guy named Kevin Salk, and mm-hmm. it's called Punk Photos from a Fan's Perspective. Early Days of South Bay Hardcore Punk. With photos of Black Flag, The Misfits, Minor Threat, Circle Jerks, Descendants. I never get tired of looking at these photo books. And uh, especially people in the crowd, too. Like, you know, seeing if you see someone from a band in the crowd or what they were wearing back then or what shirt they were wearing. I love that stuff. You can get this one from FathomArt.com. And it looks like another killer
1: photo book from back in the day. Yeah, he's on Instagram. He posts a bunch, a bunch of photos all the time. Really yeah. great ones. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's going to be killer for sure. Um, there's like three or four that have just been announced in the last few months, and I'm happy to pick this one up too. That's all I got. Awesome, man. Should we get some group therapy? I know I need it.
2: <laughs> History lesson, part one.
0: Okay, man. Like I said, we had the last full-length Alternatives release Back at SST seventy five, hold your tongue, which is a cool record, and we had Chris on that show as well. Thankfully, um, where should we go with this release, man? It is uh, it's a wild one.
1: Yeah, it is. So, yeah, if you haven't heard that interview with Chris, I, I'm sure we go through the the formation of the band and yep. uh, the connections with Gore and that fertile Richmond, Virginia scene. The cool story of how they ended up on SST, which is connected to Always August. Yeah. Definitely with Richmond, one of those super eclectic and accepting scenes that we just love.
0: There weren't enough bands for there to be cliques, right? Yeah. You all, you were all in it together even if you were like totally different than the next band. Love that.
1: Here's Brian Coley in Trouser Press Ryan, a frantic improv-minded combo from Richmond, Virginia's hop-crazed art community. During SST's expansionist days of 86, their all-instrumental sax-led spaz attack was among the most promising noise the label released. The band's first two LPs, recorded as a quartet, feature sax and flute playing of a remarkably non-fusionoid stripe. Hmm. So the lineup on this album, Ryan, is the same as the previous one. It's Chris Bopst on bass, Jim Thompson on drums and percussion, Greg Ottinger on guitar, and Eric Ungar on sax, flute, and a bit of guitar. Why don't we throw it over to Chris? Right on. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Chris Bopst. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so last time we talked was for the Hold Your Tongue episode, which came out in 86. We're all the way into 1988 now. So a little bit of time, a year, year and a half, probably between those Mm -hmm. two releases, what were the alternatives up to during that, that time?
2: Well, we, uh, we went on tour to promote, um, uh, hold your tongue with uh COC and honor which was uh, We were kind of thrown onto that tour at the last minute. <laughs> and when we showed up in Athens, Georgia and hooked up with, um, uh, COC, they're like, Oh, yeah, we just found out that you were on this tour.
3: <laughs> we're like,
2: oh, okay. Honor all we knew from Richmond, mm-hmm. and uh, they were good friends, and they had set up uh, Global uh, was um, the the booking arm of SST. Right. Um, you know, uh, what booked a tour for C O C, and then put us on at the last minute. <laughs> so. You know, everything worked out. Um, the thing was, is that, you know, that was definitely a square peg round hole mm-hmm. for us, um, you know, because their audience, you know, was merging into a kind of metal type of crossover, and we were not that kind of band. so we were faced with pretty much either total indifference or just uh, all and out uh, contempt. You know, hailstorms of spit, things like that, uh, which kind of culminated in uh, playing Fender's Ballroom. And, um, you know, we were just spit on by 2,000-plus people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We've heard that Fender's Ballroom was (laughs) a real proving ground, for sure.
2: Well, yeah, it was brutal. I mean, that (laughs) tour was brutal. I mean, some of of the crowds, you know, we all made fans here and there. But, you know, they were there to see COC. They weren't there to hear some, you know, instrumental, uh, you know, punk jazz band with saxophone.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) So, But it did kind of strengthen our resolve, kind of highlighted by that Fender's ballroom gig, because, you know, we were just like, fuck you. I mean, it definitely (laughs) killed, like, punk rock for us, you know, and the kind of strict interpretation of it. Right even though we were kind of falling off with it anyway. It was just kind of like a new kind of uniform you would wear. You know, spiky people wanted spiky hair and, uh, you know, just this kind of conformity. And, you know, that was not what we were about. So it kind of strengthened our resolve. That tour ends mysteriously in Los Angeles. (laughs) There's supposed to be a whole other track back home, but for whatever reason, uh, Global dropped the ball mm. and sent everybody home. <laughs> uh, so we drove nonstop from L.A. to Richmond in two and a half days. Wow! Um, and then we did, you know, some more touring after that. But that tour really did kind of solidify our, you know, kind of resolve. Uh, you know, to continue and, you know, to us, it was just confirmation that we were doing something right if the, you know, punker masses uh, didn't like it. So uh, we did more touring East Coast type of stuff and went back to just start writing um, more material. The material became uh, much longer
3: because
2: mm-hmm. um, start, you know, we started listening to. Not that we just started to, but we started incorporating um, more jazz and funkier elements and less just kind of straight speed punk rock elements to our music. Right. So it kind of started with Hold Your Tongue with uh, uh, Stinky Hole and Over the Counter Culture. We were, you know, kind of like, you know, we just played all the time. So, you know, we just tried different stuff.
1: Yeah. It must have been refreshing to come back to Richmond and that really artistic scene there where the banner of punk rock was, much, or the, the tent was much wider.
2: Well, yeah, it was just, you know, we're bands. You know, everybody was kind of influenced by this underground kind of thing, you know, doing your own thing. A lot of it had to do with post-punk, you know, kind of like uh, Red Correola and Ubu and, you know, Bush Tetris, kind of that, Post punk world, you know, and kind of emerging of cultures. You know, we were all from the DC area, so we were kind of well versed in um, go go music and, you know, reggae. I mean, I was, you know, kind of growing up in the punk stuff. I just thought you had, to, you know, like that was your thing, you know, <laughs> that you had to, you know, that at least initially I had to like reggae. I mean, it was definitely a black and white type of thing, you know, bad brains were you know, big part of who we were. So it was always kind of a, you know, uh, a cultural type of thing, you know, and at that time it was kind of weird. Uh, you know, and, the, and Richmond had the good guys, you know, it was all-black band as part of the Black Rock Coalition, and it was, you know, fairly fairly well-integrated scene uh, of, you know, different types of influences. So everybody kind of fed off each other. Right
1: when you went up to dc to play shows what what kind of shows did you play there like what kind of bands would you have been paired with
2: kind of weirdo bands you know not really you know we did some shows on the road with, with you know various like discord bands and stuff but um you know we played early shows with fugazi mm-hmm. and uh you know we played with the bad brains you know people that we knew um So, and none of that was, you know, weird, you know, because it was at that kind of point where people were, you know, hardcore was expanding, right? um, you know, starting in probably, I mean, to me, you know, hardcore kind of died in 83, you know, and then kind of touch and go and, um, um, you know, SST alternative tentacles, you know, the stuff coming out of Texas and Chicago and, you know, was was different, you know, because, you know, the people that started playing during Hardcore, which we all did, just got kind of, you just kind of moved on, yeah. you know, um, and it just kind of made sense.
1: Yeah, outside of the COC experience, I feel like there would have been way more bands around this point that Alternatives could have paired up with that would have, you know, been more like-minded. Oh,
2: sure. But it was still, you know, you have to think the '80s. It was really kind of hard, you know, to find, you know, get your foothold anywhere, because, you know, I mean, there was still the tyranny of the brick and mortar. Uh, You know, yeah, we had a record out on an underground label, but that didn't mean anything. You know, it was like the hipster record stores may have one or two copies of it, and um, you know, it was a hard sell even for you know, much more established acts. And it was still, you know, like having all original music was still kind of, you know, in some parts of the country, very weird, you know? For sure. People yeah. would still yell, Free Burry, you know, I don't know <laughs> any of these songs. You know? So that was still prevalent. You know, and I mean, radio was still the same. You know, this is at the dawning of college radio. So uh, it was still an uphill battle to get heard
1: anywhere tell me about radioactive audio and adam green
2: uh well adam was uh, a friend of uh, greg Onger's from Reston virginia and he was you know he had a nice stereo (laughs) (laughs) and he liked the resonance and you know he liked a lot of the stuff that we did so we just kind of made him our sound man you know just like he just stand back there and make sure they can hear the facts. Right. You know, so it just kinda happened organically. He just, you know, kinda learned with us and we learned with him. He went on and did, you know, work with Guar and uh he did the, the Brocky experience records and mm. it was all kind of uh incestuous blend at that point. But uh, Radioactive was a studio on Gray Street in town by Victor Benshaw, who was, you know, probably 10 years older than us um, that had a little studio. And we were able to, you know, buy a block of time, you know, at a reasonable rate late at night. Uh, and We knew him, so we used to spend a lot more time um, recording the record than we did with Hold Your Tongue, which was just
1: done, you know, as fast as possible. Right. So Adam had experience in a studio also at this point, or it was more uh, just like a, well, a tech?
2: he was more of an engineer with Victor kind of looking over his shoulder. Gotcha. You know, we just were kind of like, well, we'll do it together. Um, and then, yeah, it was a lot more experimental. We had time to do a bunch of different stuff, which, you know, I, I'm like, uh, you know, because at that point we were pretty well home. You know, but we wanted to you know mess around with it in the studio and stuff, so we added a bunch of stuff. I don't think any of us are happy like when we sent it off, it sounded great, but the mastering always sounds weird to us, like Richard Ford did it, but you know it never never sounded like what we heard so you know, uh, to this day the you know the three of us, all four of us kind of kind of love the have that remastered you know Mm -hmm. because it does have kind of a weirdo doesn't have the proper sound i don't think
1: yeah it's odd you we've seen richard pop up but more in a producer's role usually these records have been mastered by john Golden. i don't know if we've seen one actually mastered by by richard ford yet
2: yeah i don't know what the story is on that maybe they were they were you know saving money or i don't know Mm. but you know we were kind of like damn yeah, didn't sound like we what we thought it would sound like.
1: Now, would the kind of bed tracks for this been have been recorded live off the floor?
2: Oh yeah, we recorded everything live.
1: How about going through these tracks? the The record starts with a giant "Yeehaw." Who's that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my brother, ah. uh, Eric. He who did the cover
1: mm-hmm.
2: did the cover of the first two records. Oh, no, yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of our, you know, kind of kick-ass, you know, <laughs> but we would open with that a lot, and, uh, you yeah, know, it was probably our our most, you know, rock-like tune.
1: How much of this was, like, jammed in practice, or were people, like, writing individual parts and bringing them in?
2: Well, yeah, we would, you know, we would jam, but, you know, we weren't a jam band at all. It was kind of, you know, we worked a long time, you know, perfecting songs, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were sometimes later elements to expand on stuff, but it was a pretty disciplined approach to the tune. I mean, people would bring in, you know, either I or Greg or Eric would bring in riffs,
3: right.
2: you know, and then a workable idea, you know, not just simple riffs, but, you know, this and that and this and that. And then from the jams, we we would kind of I don't remember this one or that one. We would know, kind of play around with uh,
1: construction. Was any of this stuff written on the road?
2: Um, sometimes, you know, when we would, you know, have sound checks, we would you know play stuff that we had put together. You know, we were putting together at the time. Mm-hmm. And then we recorded that uh, group therapy when we came off tour. We did another national tour right before we recorded that one.
1: So you were tour-tight.
2: <laughs> oh, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the whole goal. I like, was okay, well, you know, and we always did weekends and, mm-hmm. you know, long weekends. And then this was probably like an eight-week tour. So mm-hmm. we were like, yeah, we'll want to record the minute we get back, you know.
1: So you were playing all these songs on the tour? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mayo Bridge to Cuba, what's the title reference? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mayo Bridge to Cuba is actually uh, a bridge called the Mayo Bridge uh, here in um, Richmond. And at that point it went to, you know, it's, well, still goes to the south side, but at that point it was just kind of uh, a desolate, forgotten part of town. And so we used to just say, uh, you're going to Cuba when you go <laughs> over the Mayo Bridge. Uh. And yeah, you know, Richmond in the last ten years has totally changed. I mean, it's it's taken off. You know, I mean that area has been totally redeveloped, and um, you know the Richmond that we, you know, uh, came to and grew up in is you know rapidly you know gone <laughs> if it still exists. Right. Because Richmond was basically a burnt out shell. I mean, after the White flight of the '60s after Kennedy and King get shot, you know the tax base in Richmond didn't come back until really within the last ten years. Mm-hmm. So in the '80s it was like, <laughs> I mean, it's also what we loved about it was because it was no man's land. I mean, you'd be like, where the fuck is everybody? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: and it was cheap, right on the East Coast. Uh, so you know we could go play DC, Baltimore, Philly new york boston you know and you know could
1: be home right
2: and pay a fraction of the cost that we would if we lived in any one of those places
1: it's true yeah so
2: and you know we were in guar for a while so there's no way guar could have started in, in any other city just for the you know volume uh how cheap space was and you know and how close everything was together right yeah, you, know, you go I I didn't have a car, we had a band band, but when I was home I run my bike everywhere. You know, so uh as you know, Northern Virginia refugees, that was, you know, kind of a god, you know, unbelievable to us. So for sure. And that had a big you know, big influence on how we progressed because we could, you know, live the life of, you know, a, a working musician yeah. without killing yourself
1: you know yeah for sure mail bridge to cuba what are we hearing on this it sounds like breaking bottles or wind chimes or something oh
2: no yeah we were smashing glass in the <laughs> in the studio and you know <laughs> we were you know you know doing, putting all types of different packing tracks and, mm-hmm. you know just kind of messing around because you know we had it late night the guy just basically let us take over i mean we had a minuscule budget but you know, he did all of his commercial work, uh, uh, Ben Ben Shaw, Victor did all his stuff in the day. And then at night, you know, it was, you know, pretty much our domain for that time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, correct. And, you know, we respected him. We didn't mess anything up or, or anything like that. So, I mean, he was, he enjoyed it.
1: Right. Well, you have extra time. You're going to use that to certainly get creative. Uh, <laughs> Neurotic yeah. Envoy, real jazzy, walking bass line on this. I feel like your bass playing came a long way between these two records.
2: Oh no, I, I definitely. I mean, there were probably, there were three distinct moments in my tenure in the band where I felt like, you know, like I, like I got better.
3: <laughs> you know,
2: like I could tell that I had gotten better, and I had basically written that one by myself.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, I'd come up with the whole thing, you know, as I kind of, you know, listened a lot of, you know, listened to a lot of jazz, you know, a lot of Coltrane, Mingus, Monk, all the kind of big guys, you know, and it kind of, you know, influenced, uh, had an obvious influence on uh, me and uh, Eric Unger. And, you know, and it was open for Greg to play, and he was just like, I think that'll probably be just, you know, good as is, you know, so we just went with it as a, as a trio. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you know, is Eric self-taught?
2: Uh, he, I think he had some lessons, but primarily self-taught. And then also during this time, he started playing more guitar. So he was starting to have more, um, more interest in composition. He was you know, and which eventually led to him leaving the band is he he wanted to play guitar, so I mean that was kind of evident um on this record, like you know, light through the window, those two parts were recorded on his house on main street, right. and basically how it was was I would drive around the block in the car, and I think uh, his roommate's car, I would hit play um. Yeah, you know, I hit record, drive around the block, and when I came back, I'd hit turn it off. <laughs> so that was live through the window. And he would sit in his place and practice guitar and look out his window.
1: Uh, Caffeined.
2: That was kind of base. We did a free show, or we did a show on a Sunday afternoon. And, <laughs> and so, we, you know, getting people to come, we're like, we're giving away free coffee. So and we love coffee. You know, we were crazy coffee heads, and was, so we drank a ridiculous amount of coffee. And all of us would agree it was probably the single worst show we ever played because <laughs> we were
1: so so, so caffeine, caffeinated, so coffeeed up.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, it was it was horrible. I mean, it was just so stiff and agitated. I mean, it definitely felt like like, like we were caffeined.
1: Yeah, you know, like, oh, God, you
2: know, horrible. <laughs> I remember we played that one high on caffeine and wasn't it just horrible? So didn't have the name at the time. But after that gig, uh, we came up with caffeine.
1: Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Life through the window part, two. I also hear some samples on there, like uh, the dog barking, I think, is probably. No, no
3: that's.
2: That's just recorded live. Oh, really? Yeah, it was just you know recorded in the neighborhood, and just you know I think they did a lot on Tascam Two Trap.
1: Mm, okay. Tim Harding was good for a couple of laughs on Poindexter.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, at the beginning of Poindexter, which is about Poindexter in the um, in the uh, at the time was the Reagan hearings. What's his first name? I forget. But we had like a bunch of laughing that we we cut it out beforehand, but we still credited him with being there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was kind of our John Poindexter, you know, mm-hmm. was a fucking asshole. <laughs> 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 I mean, we all hated, all hated Reagan.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know? So that was kind of you know our. as as political as we got as a
1: band. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then the song Ripe, for sure, that bong hit, That's None of You Guys, that's sampled, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, that was... uh, That was actually one of the first tunes that we wrote after after Hold Your Tongue. After all that material, that was kind of the first one that we came up with.
3: Hmm. And, yeah,
2: yeah, we were, you know, there's some hello heroic amounts of weed at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and you know, the first record had paraquat, You know, all these things that at the time were, you know, could get you in a serious trouble. We had friends that, you know, were in jail for dealing, you know, crim, you know, tiny amounts of weed. So, uh, it was kind of, you know, kind of our like, oh yeah, we're rebels. Just for smoking weed. And then you think about it today where, you know, Virginia, which I just can't believe, you know, uh, now it's, you know, basically decriminalized. Right. And what was funny is that when it happened, guitar, uh, Greg got in touch with me. He's like, do you remember when I got busted? We, we were playing at JMU, which is a college here in Virginia. And we were in the dressing room with a friend's band and we were smoking a little bit of weed Turns out the campus police office, a uh, campus cop, which was just a college student, called the cops on us. <laughs> I walk out of the room you know, 30 seconds before the cops come, and they bust Greg with literally like a symbol of weed. Oh, wow. And so Greg has to go to court and... You know, so they, they re, you know, about to read the book, Greg Ottinger, um seven years. No. And she lets that shit hang in the air for, you know, two, three seconds. And um, she said, suspended, uh, providing that, you know, he has no relapses in the next year, or else he spends the full seven years in jail. Wow. And again, this is all for, I mean, it was like a thimble of weed. You know, <laughs> I left the room because I was like, right, we're done.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's
2: why I left. Yeah. And it totally, you know, fucked him up bad. And then, you know, cause we were not drinkers. Mm-hmm. We were you know, pot smokers. That's what we did. And, uh, and he was one of the biggest of the band. I mean, he was had to have it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So as part of his probation, they're like, "Oh, you got to go to AA." Wow! Like, Why'd you go into AA? And then <laughs> within about a week, I was like, "Oh, okay, now I know." Because he couldn't smoke weed, but he could drink beer, so <laughs> he started drinking beer. <laughs> so we were like, "God, it's like a self fulfilling prophecy here, you know? Like, God, you want him to drink beer and become an alcoholic." So, but you know, he went through the year. Yeah, and didn't go to jail, but yeah, that sat on his head yeah. right around the time. Right around that time.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we were all horrified.
1: Uh, the next track, Ringworm Wigwam, is that kind of considered two separate tracks?
2: No, we were. You know, that was kind of like, uh, you know, a, kind of a, a slower, more maybe not slower, but a, a kind of more moderate. Uh, pace version of over the counterculture, mm-hmm. kind of like our as close as we ever came to a ballad, and sometimes we would stretch that out live, like the the open, you know, we'd have a build up to the beginning, you know, kind of that fast waltz type of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. What's going on at the end of this record? It sounds like a film roll or something with some street noises or a a bar or a cafe.
2: Oh, yeah, that was uh, just kind of the the world of Richmond uh, that we took out walking around oh, okay. uh, the town at that point. Because we had like a task in that we could walk around with. So we put that in there.
1: Now, it says on the back of the LP, it references an 88 tour. So I'm assuming once this came out, you were back out on the road.
2: Oh, no, yeah. I mean, that was our, I mean, we kind of took the, you know, black flag, yeah, we were um I mean, what we wanted to do was play, you know, and we took that kind of work ethic to that's what we figured we had to do was just play and that's what we wanted to do. You know, we'd play in L A we'd do eight record stores in a day. You wow. know, and anywhere we could do a record store on tour we would do it. Right. Um just as you know, it was like virtually impossible to fight you know, Prince or Bruce Springsteen in terms of getting heard,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: it was, uh, really, really kind of impossible, <laughs> you know, and, and this is, you know, years before Nirvana kind of bust open that door. But even by that point, gr- you know, people like kind of returned to this kind of classic rock mentality, you know, to me, I always think Nirvana dinosaur junior, um, are kind of like a, you know it's a kind of a throwback to classic rock in a lot of ways, yeah there was that great period, you know probably like eighty four to eighty eight eighty nine where it was you know everybody different ball game, you know rock music was dead, you know, the kind of trying to figure out the next step, and then the next step was kind of a step back, I thought as good as those bands were, it was still kind of you know back to pre-hardcore influences.
1: Any chance, Chris, of this album showing up on your Bandcamp page anytime soon?
2: Uh, It might. You know, uh, you never say never. (laughs) If I can get the time or, you know, Jim can get the time, we'll probably put it up there.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, after this record, how long until Eric left the band?
2: uh, After that 88 tour, we came back and, you know, just kind of, we could tell he was unhappy it was always he was always kind of a uh, we used to call him captain Sunshine as <laughs> kind of a joke right because he was always kind of you know a morose character mm. but you know I mean we, we got along with him he was a couple of years older than us so he always felt I, I guess he kind of felt that you know an outcast and then kind of his you know he had different different goals right yeah you know, whereas the three of us were fairly well unified in a kind of vision, you know, cause we started playing before he even joined the band. So, uh, just kind of seemed like a natural progression. And then when we played our first show in town without him, I mean, so many people like,
3: <laughs>
2: you know, I mean, I always knew he was kind of a polarizing character, mm-hmm. but, you know, after he left the band, it was like, you know, we suddenly became so much more palatable to people, <laughs> which I was kind of like, oh, shit. Eric was like the asshole repellent, <laughs> you know, so. But definitely, you know, it, it definitely changed our perception, you know, and, you know, the crowd. We definitely became much more, um, uh, you know, palatable to people, mm-hmm. you know, without that sacks or flute. Right. And then easier for sound men, we were like easy, (laughs) you know, set up. We could go in and, you know, knock something out pretty quick.
1: Right. Right on, Chris. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it.
2: No, yeah. Thank you for doing it. (laughs) I really (laughs) appreciate that.
0: Awesome. So very cool to have Chris on again, and uh, give us kind of like the -the on-the-scene report. From this one you know right from the porch that's right. where you know <laughs> where the life in the window tracks you know were recorded to, to just kind of hear what was going on there very cool very cool to hear as well like what happened after eric left the band yeah. um that's that kind of sets the stage for the next alternatives release when we get there
1: yeah great point about richmond kind of being a, a hub city
0: yeah the geography was yeah. key
1: cheap like I think he says Gore couldn't have happened in any other city and if you read that amazing book on Gore, Let There Be Gwar, uh they talk about, you know, the warehouse space that they needed just to house all that <laughs> stuff and to create it all, you know, slave pit and moving from around to cheap warehouse space in Richmond and stuff like that. Like yeah. they, they always rented out huge warehouses. Reminds me a bit of the New York scene in the Early 80s, where you hear, you know, about Michael Girard, for example, renting out entire warehouses. Yeah. In the early 80s.
0: Yeah. There was a lot of that in uh, that Chris France book I just finished reading, too, talking about that the late 70s, early 80s, renting out spaces in uh, New York and how, you know, it was real helpful, (laughs) I guess, to be located close
1: to all the clubs, too. Yeah. I got a copy of that, by the way based on your recommend. Did like you? With the oh, Ramones. Yeah. I gotta get, I got to hear the Ramones mentions.
0: The first few chapters, you're going to laugh reading about the Ramones and the tour with Talking Heads in Europe.
1: Yeah, let's get into this record, man. History Lesson, Part 2. So it was released, Ryan, on June 20th, 1988, on LP, CD, and cassettes. Every song on the record is credited to the entire band, as far as yeah. writing goes. We start with track one on side one, Bozo, Bimbo, Baby. (laughs) Starts with a huge yeehaw from Chris's brother, Eric, and then they come out of the gates swinging, man. The whole band kind of just explodes. Yeah, there's some serious
0: metal chords and shredding on this, and then it ends with like this just scorching flute solo, right? (laughs) Lots of cool transitions and layers in this tune.
1: Yeah, I th- Chris said they would often open shows with this track. It's got mm-hmm. almost a Middle Eastern vibe on the sax. Yep. Greg Ottinger just going off on guitar. Love the big dramatic switch halfway through where they go all psychedelic and Eric switches to flute. Monster track, man. And then we go to the second track, Mayo Bridge to Cuba. Some of the parts here kind of remind me of Blast a little bit. They just have oh that- no way. Yeah, they just have that really heavy, dense feel. Yeah. Lots of great twists and turns, some congas or a tabla, I'm not sure which, but Jim Thompson is credited with playing both on the album.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's got kind of a cool swung beat with lots of different sections, and I agree, very dense. Cool guitar effects on it, too, yeah. that kind of add to it.
1: Track three, Neurotic Envoy. This is one where Chris brought in the song Almost Completed. A really strong bass line, very jazzy. No guitar Mm -hmm. in this song, just bass drums and some great sax playing from Eric.
0: Yeah, definitely jazzy for sure. Jazziest so far.
1: Yep. Track four, Caffeined. Love the story Chris tells about basically being paid in coffee for a show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the well,
0: sometimes, sometimes you take what you can
1: get that's right the title suits this song it's very a very jittery song
0: yeah a bit funky a bit yeah. jazzy um, it's got that telephone bit at the end too what do you want yep. I, I cannot
1: hear you and then we end side one with Life Through the Window Part 2 Cool, mm-hmm. cool that they put part two on side one yeah. I totally thought that savage sounding dog was sampled.
0: No. Yeah. It's it's real apparently. Starting up of a car, some rain outside, sax solo on the porch, just kind of jamming by yourself on the porch while the world while the world kind of passes by. Very yeah. sax very saxophone.
1: Kind of reminded me of that Mr. Wrong no means no song. I'm doing well, I think. I'm it's doing called. well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: they were really having fun with this record and like being experimental and trying lots of different things for sure.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And then we flip it over and we have life through the window part one. Or if you're listening on CD, like Ryan and I were, these two tracks would kind of just, they kind of just blend together.
0: Yep. This one is acoustic guitar though, rather than sax on the porch.
1: More specifically, Ryan, I think it's a Spanish guitar.
0: Ah, (laughs) Spanish guitar, very nice. Yeah. Have you seen any? Speaking of Xander Schloss, have you seen any of the footage of oh, yeah. Circle Jerks lately?
1: Yeah, I've watched lots of it.
0: Yeah, with Joey Castillo on drums. Yeah. Whoa, you know I saw Circle Jerks. I've only seen them once. I think it was like two thousand and four, two thousand and five, Barry Ontario Warp Tour. Not the best time hmm. to see anyone but it was I wanted to see Bad Religion, The Damned and the Circle Jerks and they were all playing the same afternoon so how do you yep. how do you res- how do you resist? But is it like it just seems like anything that
1: Keith fronts is insane. Oh, for sure, man. Right? Like they they there is nothing He's that t- top 5 punk rock vocalist for sure.
0: Wow, wow. Amazing. Still kicking. I wish I could see them.
1: Yeah. Uh well, maybe you will once COVID's over, maybe they'll do a new album and a North American tour.
0: Yeah, that would be great. It's great to see Greg Hetson back on stage too.
1: Yeah. Okay, track two, Poindexter. A seven minutes, 32 seconds, the longest tra- track on the record. This one is just a tour de force of creativity. So many different ideas crammed into one song. Lots of different sections. That could have been turned into their own songs, really, if mm-hmm. if the band wanted to take the easy route. You can hear a bit of Tim Harding's laughing that Chris talks about. Tim, of course, was the bassist in Always August, also from Richmond. A huge connection to the Alternatives and the SST story. And we interviewed Tim on episode 135.
0: Ah, good call.
1: Track three, Ripe, some more flute action. I wonder if Eric was influenced at all by Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. Some of the playing reminds me of, of his playing.
0: Yeah, I had the same thought too, but I wonder if it's because I'm just not that well versed on flute playing. Like maybe it's maybe I kinda get that feeling like anyone who listens to any old bass player or any old sax player and I'm like, No, no, no. This this guy's like way different than the other guy. Right. But I, I don't know. It definitely had the same type of connection for me when I listened though. Yeah. I wondered I also wondered whether you could take like the bong hit using your flute. Probably.
1: Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's been tried. Uh Yeah, I mean it might just be the fact that it's flute over a over rock. a rock, you know, that's yeah, yeah. making me think that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This one is almost like a doomy thing at times. But there's some popping on the bass, some mellow meat puppets type vibes later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ryan, there's also a backwards message after Ripe, which I'm kicking myself. I failed to ask Chris about. So we'll we'll have to update that on a future episode. Or maybe Maybe
0: Chris will let us know and we can get it on. Or someone can do it. Send it to us. We'll get it on Instagram or something.
1: Yeah, if someone has this on vinyl, Ryan and I both have it on CD. So wind that sucker back and tell us what's happening. (laughs)
0: yeah i'm sure it will make everything make sense on this record so we we it feels a little unfinished to not you know and i it's i kind of feel like i really dropped the ball because i usually have every one of these and i've just never seen this one over the years on vinyl i will pick it up next time i see it though for sure on vinyl
1: yeah uh and then we end the record with ringworm wigwam another track over seven minutes they pull out all the stops for this the final track it's a real oh, yeah. epic. it's a weird one seems to have a kind of central theme they keep returning to but it's kind of hard to pin down
0: mm-hmm. yeah there's some weird breaks in the song like well well there there is that break in the song i guess where there's like the splash and engine sound and crowd noise and birds chirping just some tapes the sounds I guess. of
1: richmond man you can kind of hear some yeah. like grunting or something going on yeah Slow
0: down acoustic guitar bit, which is cool too.
1: That's it. That's the record, man. Do you want to hear what the Spaceman
0: said about this one? Always. Here's what he said about Alternatives Group Therapy. Shredded shards of guitar imbued with an unholy energy come to life and march in a ragtag formation. Led into battle by the ravaged bones of an aged alto sax, the Alternatives, with banners unfurled, carry the fight onward. The right not to speak, the right not to be like everyone else. Very true.
1: He had a way with words, hey? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here's a few reviews that Chris sent me. You are that rare breed of individual. You thought Miles Davis was really onto something besides heroin in 1968. (laughs) And harbor a secret love for Red Era King Crimson.
0: Well, mm.
1: yeah. Red
0: is one of my favorite oh, yeah. records, man. With John Wetton on bass, playing that P bass with the pick, it's so no means no. Love it.
1: Yeah, it's not a secret love for me. Um, do you I'll... have a four
0: disc edition of that one?
1: No, I don't. There's, there's one like, with like there's a...
0: one like thirty discs, right, or something. Yeah. yeah, I've seen it. It's like four hundred bucks.
1: Yeah. Ugh. Same with the first record too, in the court of yeah. the Crimson King.
0: That's pretty recent. That one though, yeah. right? Like last yeah. year.
1: Yeah, I think the box set's called 69 or something like that. I want. Yeah. Uh, The review goes on. Sloppy horns make your pecker harder than calculus.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. Keep
3: going.
1: (laughs) Alternatives are a ferocious, intelligent instrumental band. Abrupt changes in dynamics and tempo. Determined and forceful jam-based compositions made good. Bringing to mind the Lounge Lizards had Greg Ginn and Bill Bruford been in the band. Mm. You hear a lot about them being referred to as like a jam band, but Chris is pretty adamant, you know, these songs were, they didn't jam.
0: Not so, not so. The solos may have been improvised, but this, this is not jam music.
1: Yeah. Here's another one. Another review, creating a soundscape that coalesces and juxtaposes, melts your mind, chills your bones, and kindly re-zips your fallen zipper. Group therapy should not be missed, for it is bliss, a music of structured ideas which fuses many elements and influences, from Thelonious Monk to Sonic Guitar Whale to John Cage and James Chance, Mm. into strong and comprehensive compositions. The innovation and growth is readily apparent as relative to their first album. The material is dense yet expansive. The production and engineering effectively reveal the multiple layers of sound and structure. This band and album boldly go where no band has gone before and they definitely seek out new life. Your speaker your speakers and ears will oscillate and shudder in multiple orgasms. Who wrote that one? Does I, it say? I don't have a credit for it.
0: Oh, that's too bad. That person deserves credit.
1: Yeah. Definitely, I would say, a big leap forward from Hold Your Tongue. I haven't listened to that record since... Oh, yeah? You know, since we did that episode 110 episodes ago, but...
0: Yeah, I listened to it just once this week to kind of ground myself for this. And yeah, they they grew huge, huge in that year, year and a half. Yeah. Should we do the artwork, man?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay, so we've got some Bob start front and back. Eric Bobst does the front cover, just like he did on the first record, I believe. Um, another colorful psychedelic. Hard to tell what the the medium is. It looks like pastel almost, yeah, rather than rather than pencil crayon. If I were to guess, maybe it's paint. Hard to tell. Um, I've just got this dinky little CD. But it's, uh, it's cool. And there's this random little, almost looks like a porcelain face in the middle. And then uh, the back cover was done by Chris Bopst. And also some crazy, cool, psychedelic drawings and doodlings uh, with some photos of the band superimposed on there. There's Chris and Jim in one pic with... Uh, either some shades or some specs on they both look like it's again it's hard to tell on my cd it looks like they're uh sporting some uh some soul patches Mm -hmm. or something which is which is totally fitting and then eric he's got a picture um on there as well looks like he's probably wearing like a tweed overcoat some sort of hat but then some leather gloves and he's got them pressed to his face in this contemplating like very jazz, introspective look,
1: for sure, right? When you see pictures of the bands, you can always pick Eric Unger out right away. Yeah, for sure. He looks like a jazz man.
0: And then there's, well, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's a picture of Greg just in some, looks like some shorts, and that's it, and he's just sitting on the ground. He's probably just roasting from (laughs) shred-melting his frets at a jam. Yeah. Looks good there. Um, and then Adam Green, the engineer, a picture there with uh, looks like he's holding a bunch of RCA cables in his mouth and on his head, maybe as dreads. Maybe. I don't know. And the photos are by Richard Rogoff, Cherubay and Kim Kuzniewski. I couldn't find anything on any of those folks. Their only credits I could find were for this record. The thank yous are cool, though. Think they think. Uh, it's lengthy it's a lengthy thank you list too they thank Greg Ginn, Chuck D Rich Ford everybody past and present in GWAR always August and then it says the only punk band I love that (laughs) Lawndale Porn Orchard love that, Jackanuts remember I just talked about Jackanuts love that Honor Roll also love them Uh, the DC space and then as you mentioned in the interview it says come see us on tour in 88
1: yeah That artwork of Chris's on the back looks like something you would doodle in class.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. You just have a piece of paper and you're doing anything but paying attention. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I think all we've got left is the ballot result. All right. Ballot result. All right, man. What were your faves?
1: I liked Bozo Bimbo Baby. Mayo Bridge to Cuba and Poindexter
0: ah those would be my top three as well for sure I would I'd maybe lean towards Bozo though because it's the set opener right
1: let's do it Dunsky all right thanks to Chris Bobst for coming through at the 11th hour
0: that just goes to show we'll do whatever we can to fit in someone on the show here so always hit us up we love it thanks so
1: much Chris Yeah. Ryan what's next week
0: next week we are going to a Brian Ritchie release. It's SST 186, the nuclear war 12 inch. And we've got a special guest, brand.
1: Yeah, John Kruth is on the show and it's a great interview. Everyone's going to want to check that one out. Right on. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback. So feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support. We hope to see you next week.